Girl, this is a take two on this recording. <laughs> it sure is. But here we go. We're happy to do it. It's a dress rehearsal. We don't want to mention the trauma of coronavirus and how I fled the city and you're afraid to leave your apartment. <laughs> I left today to get some essentials and I came back and like had a moment. I know. I had a moment with Mike and then I made you go through it with me. So, I'm- you know. <laughs> it's real bad. You know what we're going to do for the first time remotely ever? <gasps> Are you ready? Yeah. Jillian Pensavale! Patrick Hines. I feel like I just christened this like 125 year old house I'm living in upstate. Oh my God. That was very weird to do solo. <laughs> I know. Uh, you guys, before we get to the show, look, Jillian and I are recording remotely. If you've listened to the after party about this, you got the whole backstory. I am upstate with my family. Jillian is hunkered down in the city. Girl, how you doing? I'm doing okay. You know, I'm doing okay. It's weird. It's weird going outside, but it's also like you need to go outside a little, but no, you don't need to go outside at all. (laughs) I know. It's really weird. Listen, there's not much to tell you at the top of this episode. If you want to hear about our adventures, us leaving, them staying, check out the after party from a couple weeks ago. If you want more reason to laugh, I'm just reminding you about the Patreon, you guys, Lady Pates. There's like 140 full bonus episodes to binge. On the Patreon is where you're going to find our episode-by-episode coverage of Making a Murderer, Serial, Lorena, The Jinx, The Staircase, OJ, Don't F with Cats, Menendez Brothers, Madeline McCann, Lacey Peterson. There's so much stuff there. If you need to laugh, go find it there. Go to patreon.com slash Obsessed or go to our website, click on the Patreon link. I'm trying not to do Patreon link. Why? I, <laughs> I didn't mean it in a bad way when I, I said it. <laughs> Now I think you're baiting me. I think you always want me to be like, no, but it's so cute. And now I'm not going to say it anymore. So you ruined it. (laughs) Oh, girl, what are we talking about today? We're talking about a piece, or I was going to say a documentary, a film. It's not sure what it is. It's called Where is Robert Fisher? It is not called Who Killed Robert Fisher, which I was insisting it was called. It's not called that. Correct. It's called Where is Robert Fisher? I want to show you what I have today. Are you excited? You brought goodies? What'd you bring? Oh, 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 there she is. Oh, there she is. You're seeing her virtually. This documentary had some audio issues. I'm just going to... I'm going to give it one of those for the audio issues with this documentary. It's like we finally get the incessant on-screen text we've been screaming about, but we can't get something good without like 10 other horrible things happening. Like nothing ever goes right for us, Patrick, is what I'm trying to say. We are the victims here. No, not at all. 74th Street North, there's just an explosion. An explosion and fire burns down a Scottsdale home in minutes. It's totally, it's totally in flames. It was a big, boom, boom. Five minutes ago, police came out, and after two days of investigating, they said that the scene here is a triple homicide. It was cold-blooded what he did. They're asleep, and he literally slices their throats to where they're almost beheaded. You expect your father to protect you from the boogeyman. You don't expect your father to be the boogeyman. 
And that's what's real sick about this. Robert Fisher is a murder suspect. Mr. Fisher is still outstanding. Police believe Robert Fisher is on the run tonight. Where is he? It's one of the great unanswered stories in Arizona history. All right, girl, do you want to get us started? I guess. We're here, you know? We got the whole setup going. I hit record, so might as well. Um, We open... We open on this 911 call and it's terrible because it they're talking about this really, really big explosion that happened. And the guy is very nice who's on the phone talking to the dispatcher because he just is really keeping his cool. He just keeps saying, you bet. Yeah, it's a big fire. You bet. <laughs> 74 Street North, there's just an explosion up a volley and a fire. And a fire. And the dispatcher's like, well, can you see it? And he's like, you bet I could see it. Get your butts over here and help us out. I know. Not screaming, get your asses down here. It's like, you know, you bet. It's pretty bad. He's not screaming like a banshee. His hair's not on fire. He's giving the pertinent information. And I'm like, this is how you know it's not me. Because it would be like, 911, what's your emergency? Mm-hmm. Ma'am, ma'am, we need you to calm down. (laughs) (laughs) Ma'am. Well, the thing is, that's even more heartbreaking because the calls keep getting more and more chaotic. And then this woman calls and she's like, girl, where is the fire department? And the dispatcher's like, don't worry about it. They're on their way. And the caller's like, they come in on Holly. They get lost every damn time there's a fire. They get lost every time there's a fire. They have to come through a different way. So it starts calm, calmer than you are, as they would say, Lebowski, <laughs> just still calmer than you are. Just saying like they get lost every goddamn time. You have to tell them to go the different way. And I'm like, how do they not know at this point? How many times as a fire person do you have to get lost before you never make that mistake again? But why are there so many fires on that block? Is anybody investigating that? No, that's a very good point. <laughs> so it's April 10th, 2001. We're in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we see this like news helicopter shot of like I just have like in my nose like where a house used to be like it's this very residential neighborhood you see all these houses and pools and this one like smoldering ash pit where this house used to be the flames just jumped out of the home just before nine o'clock this morning here's what it looked like from Newshawk 5 soon after it started the house burned to the ground in minutes Yeah, and this is the beginning of like, well, not a fan of this documentary because we see the remains of humans and the remains of this house about a hundred zillion times with no warning. It's absolutely disgusting. And I think it's exploiting these people. I think it's in poor taste. I think it's morally reprehensible. I just think it's terrible. So we see this over and over and over again. And this was the thing that was making me so mad. It's like the people who died in this fire are a mom and two kids. And this documentarian shows their charred remains and I'm not saying that in jest at all like the actual charred remains of two children and a mother and we see it like four times I have it in huge letters every single time like this is the angriest I'm gonna get in this whole thing yeah because the thing is we say this every episode it's bad enough you don't have to do some like fancy filmmaking to make us feel for two kids and this woman who were murdered in this fire and the documentary as a whole does not do right by these people to begin with so it's like this is just a little hint of what's to come because they really don't do the victims any justice at all. It's not about them. It's about Robert Stupid Fisher. I totally agree with you. So we learned that like this fire is raging in this neighborhood and as the cops and the firefighters are pulling up on the house, ammunition is exploding. Firefighters say they heard explosions even after they got here. Police tell us they heard popping sounds on their way here or when they got to the scene and there may have been explosives and ammunition inside the home, but they can't confirm that or how the fire started. 
this house is full of guns. Right. And on top of that, they learn that this wasn't a normal fire. This wasn't like someone left the water boiling or whatever and something caught fire. Someone didn't pay attention to a candle, you know, whatever. They were like accelerants were used. The accelerants were used um, down the hallway. A candle was deliberately put in the middle of the hallway to ignite the gas that had been broken off from the furnace. This was no mistake at all. Yeah. So we meet these two like local reporters. One of them I love and one of them I could do without. One of them was fine until he wasn't. Let's just say that. (laughs) Which I feel is what people must say about me all the time. Girl, she was fine until she wasn't. Until she wasn't. But also the other reporter kind of throws me for a loop where I'm like, oh, you fell for that. So they're both, they come, they go back and forth, but they're here. So the two reporters, it's Tammy Geithner, who I kind of love, but you're right. In the end, she does fall for some shit that is like, Tammy, you're better than this. It makes me go, Tammy, girl. (laughs) Really? (laughs) And she speaks with authority on it. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, And the other one is this guy, Mike Watkiss. And I just don't like him for a number of reasons, beginning with the fact that he says annoying things like this. Homes burn. They don't just blow up. And this thing was so fully engulfed from the get-go. As the firefighters and the emergency responders were just getting into the smoldering ash, there just seems to be sort of a palpable sense that there was going to be more to this story. And of course there was. He's loving every second of this and he shouldn't be loving it. Yeah. So we meet the detectives. TJ is with us, Detective TJ and John Kirkham. He was also the original detective, but he is no longer with us. Yeah. So TJ is with us as in like giving a two camera interview. John Kirkham actually died of a heart attack in the middle of this investigation. Yeah. Remember how Dave Toskey like was obsessed with the Zodiac? Like he went to Washington and Cherry every year on the date. Like it was just like, I got to get this guy. Yeah. That John Kirkham felt the same way about Robert Fisher. What? really plagued him was the fact that we couldn't find him and he thought about it day and night where could Robert Fisher be where could he have gone often I would get a call from him at 11 o'clock at night with an idea and my phone would ring hey I just thought of this we got to talk about this tomorrow it couldn't wait till tomorrow we needed to talk about it right now and then we'd spend the next two hours on the phone we're gonna get him we're so close I can feel it and unfortunately he's not with us anymore but so TJ explains like here's who perished in the fire it was Mary Fisher the mother and Brittany who was 12 and Bobby who was 10 and Robert Fisher is just not there and one of the cars is also missing we're getting a like news footage from the time and the cops are saying like girl Robert Fisher we know you're not here girl but you're not a suspect just come and talk to us like we've just got a couple questions we'd like to ask you loved ones and police still have a lot of questions after this fire they don't know how it started they don't know where robert fisher is or if the father even had any idea what happened yeah in case you turned on the local news while you were out camping or whatever like please come home and help us solve this crime yeah and we learned that robert fisher he's a nurse at the mayo hospital and according to tj the last anyone knows about his whereabouts was that he left work at 5 p.m the night before this explosion right and we're gonna learn like this guy's a camper like he'll go for like days at a time camping by himself with the dog and like challenge himself to live off the land and shit. Yeah, well, he was a big talker, so I take a lot of that with a grain of salt. Like, he couldn't really live off the land. We'll get there later. Yeah. But he would use this camping as like, I'm in a fight with my wife, so I'm just gonna go isolate and like not deal with my wife or kids or any issues that might be happening with my marriage. Like, fuck you, I'm gonna go camping. So he used that as like some safety net, which is so stupid. Like, stay and deal with your life. Yeah. So TJ is telling us this is a murder. Like, when TJ and his partner John go into the home. We've got a problem here. And Johnny and I just kind of looked at each other and says, we've got a triple here. 
they see the remains of the people who are still in the houses. TJ describes them as like being comfortably in bed. And that doesn't fit. If a house explodes, somebody's gonna wake up, somebody might step and maybe be a couple of feet away from the bed. But these people look like they were comfortable in bed. If it was a slow burning fire where smoke might have knocked them out, but this wasn't a slow burning fire. With all of these accelerants, it was clear that this fire burned really hot, really fast, which means these people would have gotten up, they would have been awakened, they would have gotten out of bed. And TJ is saying that they were probably dead before the fire started. Right. And so TJ is saying, look, he probably did this to get rid of any evidence or make it so that we couldn't identify the bodies or at least buy him some time. Right. So now we're back like on the news, the local news when this happened, and we get Pastor Greg. And Pastor Greg, <laughs> From the tone of your voice, I'm assuming you're not, you're not in love with Pastor Greg. I'm not. And, you know, hashtag not all pastors. This is a very right. Pastor Greg specific <laughs> issue that I have. Yeah. <laughs> I I just, I because everyone's like, oh, the husband did it. Like, we all know, right? Yeah. So Pastor Greg is here to be like, well, not this time. We have absolutely no reason to believe that there was any uh, issues uh, taking place in that family. They have been uh, solid pillar members of our church for years. Robert was at church for a hunting safety course. There were zero issues in the family. And what we learn is that Pastor Greg is seemingly like the public authority on the ins and outs of this marriage and what happens behind closed doors. He wants everything to know everything was fine. Yeah. There weren't any issues. Don't worry about it. Stop asking questions. Because then we get from our detective friends that the cops are like, We know that they were involved in a fight at around 10 p.m. that night at 1042 Robert Fisher's seen taking $280 out of an ATM directly south of his house, less than, a, less than a half a mile away at the nearest ATM, and he's never seen again. I was like, oh my God, that is more Murray shit. You know I'm obsessed. Bear with me on this. <laughs> the look on your face. <laughs> I love whenever I bring up Warren Murray, you're like, not this shit again. Oh, God. Well, okay, that makes me sound like a fucking monster. <laughs> no, I just mean, like, it's the same thing. We're like, remember Maura took all that money out of the ATM and then, like, vanished and, according to Maggie, was never seen again. No, absolutely. That's why I hate it, because it keeps me up at night. I know. To be clear, I'm more annoyed with you than I am <laughs> at Maura Murray, just to be clear. Yeah. My annoyance <laughs> is towards you. That's crystal clear to me. I don't know if it's not clear to everybody else. <laughs> Crystal clear to me. Crystal clear. Crystal good, clear. good. But now all the detectives start using this word where I was like, um, what? I got a little confused here because... I know exactly the word that you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. TJ is like, you know how cops speak. They just have to say, like, approach the vehicle. He got in the car. Like, right. don't Patty Peterson me. Like, stop. So they're like... You know, we just, we just want to find Robert, make sure he's okay. And that's why I went to the Mayo where he supposedly worked. And then, of course, he never showed up for work. So we realized that he's outstanding. You know, he never showed up to work, which, of course, means he's outstanding. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then they're like, well, you know, Robert Fisher is outstanding. And I'm like, finally, you get the gist that, no, he's not like an A-plus kind of guy. Right. He's just unaccounted for. <laughs> unaccounted for sounds like police talk. Why can't they just say that? I don't know. I should do everyone's job. <laughs> nope. Agreed. A hero bell for you. <laughs> you got a hero bell from 300 miles away. Aw. So here's the other thing. This information that the cops want to hold sacred about the murder is leaking out to the press. Somebody from within the department is leaking it to the press. Information leaked out about the murders, details about the murders. Somebody there working, it, it could have been anybody. It wasn't our unit. We, you know, we had solid guys working that case. 
TJ's like, not my guys, girl. My guys were great. They are outstanding in the compliment way. (laughs) And so TJ is like, oh, this sucks. Because now the fact that not only these horrible details about the murders are coming out, but the fact that he's missing and on the run and like armed and dangerous and must be arrested on site. That's all over the news talking about the model and make of his car, the license plate. And TJ's like, no, like this is not what we wanted at all. Because they were just like, well, maybe he'll just come home from camping (laughs) and uh, try to lie to us. And then we'll get him. Like they just kind of want things to unfold a little bit for a couple days and the press just won't let it happen. Like it's just terrible. I know. I know. You know what else is terrible? (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mary, the wife's elderly father. What's his fucking name? Bill Cooper, girl. You gotta. I know. know, know. Three hours of it last week. If you don't know the name Bill Cooper by now, I cannot help you because I'm not recording this shit again. So it better be good. So Bill Cooper, Mary's dad, the dad of the murdered wife, is described as keeping his heart open to his missing son-in-law. Like, he's making this plea to Robert through the press. Like, can I right now just say this? Robert, we love you. Wherever you are, Robert, please. We we love you. Just, Just come home, please, Robert. I don't know what's going on. We don't know anything for sure. But we'd like to hear from you, please, Robert. And he has this moment where he's like, I don't know what happened, but if you didn't, I totally understand. And he like catches himself from saying, I understand. Yeah. And then he's like, we don't know anything for sure, but we want to hear it from you now. You know who doesn't want to hear it from you? Jillian Pensavalia. Me. I don't. I'm raising my hand. Because this could all be editing. It's just not a well-made documentary, as we've said. But, like, this is Robert's father-in-law, Mary's dad. And we don't hear him talk about Mary. It's all this crying about how much he loved Robert. And could this be a ploy to try to get him home? Like, you're in a safe space. We understand... I mean, come home, like, yeah. we love you, we love you. Yeah. But even one of the cops are like, this guy, Hugh Lockerbie, who's like the current lead detective on it, yeah. is just like... He was kind of hoodwinked with who Robert was. You know, he's marrying his daughter and grandchildren thinking, you know, he's a perfect family man. He was totally hoodwinked by Robert. <laughs> he says hoodwinked. You know I love that word. Yeah, but like, people grieve in their own way. He lost his daughter and his grandkids. Like, it suck. It's all terrible, but like, just watch the documentary. You'll get a bad feeling from this guy. I don't know what, not like a bad feeling, but like, what's happening here? The whole thing is awful. Right. But, once again, the police department has a leak problem because the cops are thinking of Robert now as a suspect because he's been missing for God only knows how long, and before they wanted it to, it gets out in the media. Right. And now, so the Cops are like, all right, fine. They are telling us, look, we think Robert Fisher alone did this. It's very clear. And then Pastor Greg is like, now hold on a second. He was totally framed and then kidnapped. I know. Pastor Greg. A guy with 20 assault rifles? I don't think so. I know. <laughs> yeah, not a fan of Pastor Greg over here. And then while we're getting all of this like horrible information, now we learn how the family died. And you guys, trigger warning, this is really bad. The two children had their throats cut and then the wife, had her throat cut and was also shot in the head. And the only people who talk about how amazing Mary was are the cops. Mm -hmm. I believe the kids went first and then Mary. Mary was stronger and she would have put up a fight. So he went and got the kids first. And this way, when he goes with Mary, if there's a struggle, he's not going to wake the kids. 
Mary was tough. She was no fucking nonsense. If Robert had come at her, she would have put up a fight. It would have woken up the kids. So we had to kill the kids first. Like the only time we hear about like what a badass like fighting woman Mary was was from the police. Absolutely. So now we start getting these home videos. Yeah. And I hate so much about them. Me too. But the director, again, trying to just make it all worse. Like he just edits this like creepy lullaby music over it. And even the closed captions say haunting lullaby music. I'm sorry, like, (laughs) stop trying to manipulate me. I'm sad enough. Now I just hate you. Now I'm just mad. The thing about these videos for me is that it shows the vulnerability of the children. Right. It's a baby, baby, baby boy and like a three or four year old girl. And you can tell in every home movie that this guy, Robert Fisher, is just a fucking madman. Yeah. And these children are not safe. To me, the manipulative move of like adding that music is so needless because we get it. We see it. We're here because these kids have been murdered. And their mother, which like people seem to be forgetting. I know. So now we're back to Bill Cooper, Mary's dad and Robert's father-in-law. Yeah. This is when he comes out to like in front of the church or whatever and basically gives a press conference in which he calls his daughter's murderer, my Robert. Right. You want to know about my Robert? He was the greatest dad. He was the greatest husband. I miss him. I miss him terribly. I miss him almost as much as I miss my daughter because they were one. I don't know these people, but it felt so much to me like a society in which the men are just valued so much more than the women. Just erasing Mary to me. And this is this weird thing where we get the on-screen text where we find out that the dad dies of natural causes in 2009. And we learn that like he eventually came around to thinking that Robert did it. He couldn't believe what occurred. But as time went on, he realized that Robert did do this. Like, I guess that's good to know. Right. I think they're also using it as a vehicle to kind of take a deeper dive into Robert Fisher, which is what we do now. Can we talk about my friend Tammy? I love Tammy. Tammy. Tammy, the local reporter, says, At first glance, Robert Fisher was a good husband, an adoring father, a church-going man, a wonderful employee. But when you look a little bit further, you see that none of that is true. Yeah, their marriage in public was awesome. In real life, it's like maybe average to like not great. Yeah, and like the more home videos we see down the road, the more anybody who looks at these home videos is gonna know like, oh yeah, this was not good. Yeah. But first girl, we gotta meet neighbor Wade. Are you ready? Oh God, Wade. Uh... (laughs) Can I do it for you? Oh, yes, please. I feel kind of bad having custody of the garbage bell. I feel like it should be with you. Look, these are trying times, whatever we got to do. At first, you're like, what's so bad with Wade? You guys just hang on. Wade tells us. He definitely was a different sort of man. He was a nurse. He worked for the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale. He was obviously a smart man and he knew what he was doing, but he wasn't a quick man. Talking to him was like talking to a person who was analyzing every word that you said and thinking long and hard about it. He was the type of guy you could see his gears working. According to Wade about Robert, nothing's ever like what it is on the surface. He's always trying to be like, what do you mean by that? Like just trying to be a tough guy all the time. I hate men like this. Me too. This is why I don't like dads. I hate dads for this very reason. Not all dads. I know. Get out of here with that. Not Dr. Pizzavalli. Not me. I'm a dad. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Somewhere Steve is like, hello. I know. 
<laughs> so we'll get back to this. Wade is just like letting us know he lived across the street from Robert and Mary for 10 years. Wade's got a lot to say and a crazy bonker story in the end. Right. And the thing is like to add to this whole like he was such a great guy in public. If you look at his resume, like on paper, all this guy does is help people. He was a firefighter. He was in the Navy. He's a cardiac technician. He's a respiratory technician. It just looks like he's just here to help. He's a good guy. And he really wasn't. Yeah. Because then Robert Caldwell, this FBI special agent, is like, yeah, whatever. It was, that's great. But he was super controlling. He was a very controlling person. He's a very difficult person to get along with to the point where his wife was having difficulty getting along with him. Anything that was put on the walls in the house had to have his okay. She couldn't decorate the house. It was okay to put a deer head up on the wall that he shot but not, you know, kids' artwork or whatever. We learn this about Robert while we're seeing home videos. So, like, as we're learning that, like, Mary needed approval to put the fucking children's artwork up on the refrigerator, I begged Daisy to give me art to put up on the refrigerator. <laughs> Daisy won't let me do it. Exactly. But, like, we're seeing this guy, like, sitting in a chair, like, scowling at Mary. Yeah, so I'm going to take us through this video because it makes me crazy, yeah. and Misery loves company, so you guys have to deal with it, too. <laughs> So he's holding little Bobby, who's a couple months old. He's like two months old. Yeah. And Brittany's like three or four, right? So Mary's behind the camera and he's like, turn that camera off. Get on with the food. Excuse me. What's you take pictures of? Turn that thing off. You. This is to show our boys two months old. Stop. So what? Leave him alone. That's his first Thanksgiving. Big deal, he says. She was just so defeated at this point because she doesn't really acknowledge it or respond. You know, like yeah. she was just in that kind of relationship where she was like, well, this is my life. Like, what are you going to do? Pick a fight about this shitty thing he's going to say? I'll save yeah. the fight for later. You know, like that's just yeah. where she is. And then this is so gross. So Brittany is like three or four. And she's like hanging on her dad's arm. Like, I know this because Daisy does this. Like kids just want to be around their parents. They just want their parents approval. And she's like holding onto his arm and like looking at him adoringly. I could sob. Okay, go ahead. And then he makes her give a twirl in this dress for the camera and gives her one of those wolf whistles. I can't whistle, but you know that like, rrr, rrr, yes. whatever it is. Brittany's looking sharp. Eh? Let's see. Show me your dress. Turn around. Turn around again. Smile. Smile pretty. He tells her to smile. He tells her to smile Pretty. So she does, like, she smiles and it's like, you know, he thinks it's adorable. It's not. Yeah. And then he tells her to scream. Okay, now scream. Ah! Ah! <laughs> yeah. See, I knew you could scream. And she does that, like, little cute, mean face that little kids do where they're just like, er, like, just, you know, like a normal, she's three years old. Yeah. And to get her to scream, he, like, yanks on her hair. And she just does that, like, no, like, she just, yeah. she yells. She doesn't, like, it's not blood curdling, but she's like, ow, she does that little kid thing. Yeah. And he goes, see, I knew you could scream. And he's, like, all smug about it. The camera is still rolling. It's just fucking terrible. And, like, all I could think about watching this was how unsafe these children are. And you know how I know they were unsafe? Because they get murdered by this guy. Right. Right. It's so hard to watch. This is where you really can start to see what like it must have felt like to live in that house with him, which must have been terrible. So now we're learning about like Robert's reputation in the community and like with his friends. And, you know, the cops tell us that like they had to go out and interview everybody who ever knew him. And we learned that his friends, quote friends, stopped going hunting with him because they felt unsafe. One of the troubling things that I realized right away from some of the initial interviews we did is he truly enjoyed hunting, but not 
as a sportsman, he took it to the next level to where he seemed to enjoy killing. He loved the hunting for the killing part, not the sport part. And I just have in huge letters. Can somebody please tell me how the sport part and the killing part are different? Like, isn't the sport part the killing part? I know. Look, you're asking the wrong girl here. What's the sport? You're not raising your heart rate. You're killing it. Like, the sport part and the killing part are the same thing. Don't try to separate that. Yeah, can't wait for these DMs. Yeah, I got. I have no intel on this. Not the person to ask. Okay, fine, fine. Moving on. But the thing is, so Detective TJ tells us about like the story that a friend of his told and like they killed some elk and I guess they were doing that thing where they just like rip the elk apart afterwards, I guess to take the meat or whatever. They were gutting it. And the guy turns around and looks and Robert's smearing the blood all over him. And they, they all turn around and Robert is like, has his shirt off and he's like smearing the elk blood all over himself. And I'm like, that sounds like the beginning of a shitty cult in the woods. <laughs> You guys, this guy's got problems. Like, I don't want to hear that rubbing blood all over your face is a thing that people who hunt do. Girl, not his face, like his butt, like his whole chest, like the thrill of the kill and all this nonsense. So it's April 9th, 2001. It's the night of the murders. And we learned that that night, the daughter, Brittany, was being inducted into the National Honor Society at the school. And her dad, Robert, was taking her to that. And Mary took Bobby to his hunting class because that's the thing that, like, you know, little kids need. He's 10 years old. I'm glad they have a hunting safety class. But if you're 10 years old, you should not be like, I'll, I'll, I'll give <laughs> exactly. the class right now in 10 seconds. Ready? 10 yeah. years old shouldn't be holding guns and hunting. The end. <laughs> right. Safety first. Like, what? <laughs> You're a really good teacher. Thank you for teaching that course. You're welcome. You guys, you got that for free. (laughs) You you guys, you can have it as a ringtone. It's the easiest class you'll ever have. (laughs) So they come home and the neighbors tell the police later. That's when they heard Robert and Mary fighting. Right. This is where we get a little bit more information about TJ's thoughts. TJ, the detective. There was a loud argument. Then I believe that after his wife and the children went to bed, that he stayed up. And he made a decision that he'd had enough. And he says that the use of the accelerants to create that huge explosive fire was probably so that Robert could destroy like all evidence of the crime. Right. That would just buy him some more time because there's confusion and it's just it's all garbage all around. Yeah. And like this is where we learn that also Robert took the family dog. And, you know, it's said over and over again throughout the documentary. He took his dog, which his sister told police he loved more than his family. Robert loved the dog more than his family, and I totally believe that. You're looking right at me when you say that. I know. <laughs> and to be fair, the dogs are part of the family. It's like random people. I'm not, I don't need any more friends. I have the dog. <laughs> so this is where we start to get, like, the police and the journalists sort of giving us their hot take on, like, did he plan it? What was his plan? And TJ says, like, look, I always thought that he did plan it. Like, did he plan it for that exact night? I don't know. And then we get one of the journalists saying, and this is interesting to me, that, like, there's very little evidence of premeditation. There's no evidence that he was stockpiling funds prior to this. There's no evidence of a secret account. He had changed the oil in his own vehicle uh, the day of the homicide and uh, then fled in his wife's. In order to like kill your family and disappear and like start a new life, that requires a major stockpiling of money. There's no evidence that he did that. He took 280 bucks from the ATM, but there was like so much more money there that they had saved between like investments for the children, investments for the parents. And also he had changed the oil in his own car that very day, but then took his wife's car. And his journalist is like, that's a puzzle. Yeah, none of it really makes any sense other than like, oh, he's just a monster who kind of snapped. And of course he had accelerants because he was a camper. 
Right. He had the weapons. He like he didn't have to really plan for this necessarily because he was living on a stockpile of weapons and accelerants anyway as this big outdoorsman. Right. So now if the documentary veers into the kind of shit that I live for and I know this is the stuff that makes you crazy. The shit that makes me crazy, girl. <laughs> It's all the theories of like what maybe happened and like we'll never know the answer. So now TJ talks to a couple who thinks that they may have seen Robert Fisher walking either into or out of this like deep woods. This woman calls me and says her and her husband are up there on the young road. It's a forest road. They're driving south and the woman is the passenger and they see a gentleman walking out and she looks right at him as he walks by the car. Right away, they believe that looks like Robert Fisher. And then TJ's like, but they call us after the fact, which happens all the time. Like, they saw this guy, they saw the news a few days later about Robert Fisher, and then they called it in. So there's no way to check on this. Right. And then there's this whole story about, like, there's one of the cops talked to a tow truck driver who thinks maybe he helped pull Robert Fisher and his car out of a ditch, but then nobody knows who this tow truck driver is. Like, there's no way of actually getting in touch with this person. Mm -hmm. And then we get another bonkers story about this town called Rye, which is very close to where all this happened, where there's this diner where, according to one of the bartenders, Tenders. She said a couple came into the bar. A gentleman walked in. A woman that came in with him immediately went to the restroom. He came up and ordered a drink. Once he orders this drink, he steps away from the bar and stands by what's, uh, there's a fireplace across from the bar. She says this man stood and kept his face hidden from everybody in the bar. Yeah, and then these two get in a verbal argument. Because to say they get in a fight is like, now wait a second. They, they're they just right. sort of like bickering. And it, enough that people are like, who are those two? Like it drew right. some attention to them. So they leave, right? The next night, the cops get a call from someone who lives very close to this bar that they were spotted at. And they're like, their doorbell is ringing. It's a female that says her boyfriend just, they had an argument and she, he just dumped her. And she needed to call for a cab. Uh, so they let her in. Her description kind of matched the Rye Diner woman. Does this point to Robert Fisher? No. Like, what are we here for? <laughs> well, all of this is to let is to let us know that, like, this is how the media, quote, caught wind that Robert may have been having an affair and that either that was the reason for the murders or the person he was having an affair with helped him escape. So now we have to go through this fucking gross guy, Robert Fisher's, like, extramarital affairs. Right. So it turns out a few years ago, we know for sure he cheated on her at least once. Right. Because he confided in his church and then Pastor Greg who was like everything's fine nothing bad ever happened everything's fine Pastor Greg was like you should totally tell Mary what happened yeah. and then they get separated and then they got back together so that was a few years ago then a year before the murder we get the second confirmed cheat situation yeah. <laughs> where he be all oh, because of his back because of that back <laughs> surgery all those years ago he went to a masseuse about a year prior to the murders, he had gone to a masseuse and allegedly contracted a urinary tract disease from the masseuse. Came home with a UTI, which is an STD, everybody. He got an STD from this masseuse who gave him like a handy on the table. Or whatever. Now, right. <laughs> again, if everyone's consenting, whatever you have to do. But yeah. we meet Robert's sister. Yeah. And we only know her as Robert's sister. Her Literally, her lower third is Robert's sister. <laughs> now, look, if you don't want people to know who you are, yeah. 
there are ways to do that, but you can't get on camera with your face as plain as day with the lighting I'm, and not masking your voice and then not say your name. It's so weird. Like, I just don't get it. You got to go full Jacqueline from Dirty John. You got to go full Jacqueline if you don't want people to know who you are. So the, his sister chimes in. Again, we don't know her name. <laughs> Wait, are we going to give her a name? Karen. Okay. <laughs> All the poor Karens in the world, like I know, Karen, that name is taking a beating. Karen is like the meme name for like the person who's just like bad at being a coworker. No, it's like the horrible white woman who caught like the black people are having a barbecue again. Like, shut up, Karen. <laughs> exactly, Karen and Becky, Susan, Becky. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, we can. You want to? She looks like a Cheryl. And that hair, that hair screams Cheryl to me. I'm just saying. Let's go with Cheryl. Let's give the Karens a break for for a minute. <laughs> She's definitely a Cheryl. Her name is definitely Cheryl. Oh my, it's as though you've seen her birth certificate. Look, I have watched a lot of Columbo, okay? <laughs> I am just reading the signs here. Oh my God. So Cheryl, Robert's sister, <laughs> is like- I know that my brother was in, um, unfaithful one time in their marriage. He, he had a back injury and he went to have a massage and he fell into temptation. Mary was gone at the time. She came back and my brother confessed it to her. And that's when they started going through counseling. The only time he cheated was with the masseuse because he fell into temptation because he really hurt his back. And I'm like, Cheryl, <laughs> he went to a certain type of massage parlor. Yes. Don't tell me he went to some fancy spa and the masseuse, they locked eyes from across the room. And she was like, I must have you now for a one day fling in the massage table. No, he went to a certain type of establishment. OK, Cheryl, you're garbage. You know who else is garbage? We're back to Wade, the neighbor. <laughs> All right, tell me everything. So remember Wade, the neighbor from earlier? He lived across the street from them for like 10 years. A decade. Yeah, that's 10 years, girl. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. No, it wasn't 10 years. It was a decade, Jillian. It's like, are you even paying attention to the movie? Well, I mean, this is right on par for the patriarchy that we're dealing with in this movie. So Wade comes in just victim blaming from the get go because he's yeah. like. Him and his wife fought and they fought a lot. Now. To his credit, he never really ever raised his voice or screamed at his wife. It was always his wife doing the screaming at him, calling him worthless, saying she could have done better. Now this happened almost on a daily basis for over a decade. Their marriage got worse and worse, okay? Like Robert never raised his voice, okay? But Mary was always yelling, screaming at him on a daily basis for over a decade about how worthless he was and that she could do better. And I was like, spoiler, he was and she could have. <laughs> There's no way this is true. Or maybe this is true and she was yelling as a reaction to him being a total fucking monster, Wade. Watch those home videos for five fucking seconds and tell me if you could have lived with that guy, girl. Yeah, Wade, it absolutely didn't happen. If Mary was screaming and verbally abusing her husband out in the street at two o'clock in the afternoon every day for 10 years, we right. would have another person to talk to about it. There would be some <laughs> kind of record of it. Like it totally. wouldn't just be Wade who's like weirdly obsessed with Robert Fisher. <laughs> and then Garbage Wade tells us that like- when him and his wife would have an epic or just a gigantic blowout. He'd disappear for a week or two or take a long weekend off work and just go camping. He'd go out there alone. When this would happen, when they would have what he calls an epic, Robert That's Fisher would just like- That's not a full sentence or a term, Wade, you idiot. <laughs> Wade, we fucking hate you if it's not clear. 
So you guys, it's April 20th, 2001. This shit is crazy. Some campers find his car in the middle of the woods and we see like aerial footage of it and it's confirmed that it's Mary's missing forerunner. Robert Fisher had a large uh, diesel truck. If you're going camping and probably trying to get away from everyone in a remote part of Northern Arizona, it's probably a better idea to take the forerunner, even though her forerunner was two wheel drive. Like, that news footage of seeing the Forerunner was crazy to me. Yeah. And so the cops are saying, like, he just went to a place that was familiar. Like, this is where when he would, like, run away from his problems and his life and his family and his kids and his marriage and all that, all the shit he didn't want to deal with. This is kind of the area he would go to escape. And it lines up sort of with that couple who called into the cops that they had seen him walking around in this general area. And then another one of these reporters is like, you guys, there was all of these caves, three caves in particular, within, like, a three-minute walk. He could be literally hiding out in any one of these caves. So there are like 30 caves, but there are three right nearby. So they just pick one at random. Cave 41 is her name. (laughs) They thought that he was in one of the caves. It was actually called Cave 41. And so they brought in spelunkers. They brought in cadaver dogs. And they brought in cameras to try and search this cave. And they had SWAT team members crawling in. They decide they're going to search the living shit out of Cave 41. And only Cave 41 because he wasn't there. (laughs) And so they don't do like 40 and 42. I don't know what the other cave's names are that are around there. They're just like, well, he's not in this one. He's definitely not in any of them, you guys. And these caves are so deep and they're so isolated from the rest of the forest that if he had decided to take his own life, he could easily have gone into one of these caves and killed himself with his gun and no one ever would have heard it like this is where it sort of devolves into like what he did by parking the car there was kind of the perfect plan because it's sort of impossible to determine if he went into one of these caves and took his own life or like wandered into the woods and took his own life and was devoured by an animal or if he staged this whole thing to make it look like he did that and then like took off for a new life somewhere else right so they searched the car the car is completely like wiped clean the only trace of Robert that they find is like a fingerprint on a coffee mug and then girl are you ready for me to say it yeah yeah you say it a pile of human poop he pooped right outside the driver door there was human feces near the door of the forerunner maybe a final you know sort of uh you know take that sort of a statement to his previous life he that he went to the bathroom right by her car and he brought his dog who made like a cute little bed under the car because his human just left him in the woods. Yeah. So they're like, no, it's not dog poop. Like that's human poop. They refer to it as human feces. And Gross. again, the dog is another like either red herring or an obvious answer. Like people are saying if he loved the dog so much but knew that he was going to abandon the dog, why did he bring the dog? And then it's like, why didn't the dog follow him if he ran off? If a dog is trained and you tell him to stay, he will stay. But dogs also tend to run, if you take them out in the forest or out in an open area, they tend to explore. And that dog may very well have been out chasing a squirrel or something when he decided to leave. Because I believe that if he was going to walk away, he could have easily just tied the dog up. The dog is just like, girl, I'm good. I don't have to deal with this nightmare anymore. I can chase all the rabbits. Like, I'm 
Like, I made a little bed for myself, but if anyone wants to adopt me, great. And so someone did. I just don't know who. Exactly. And also, like, in the middle, when we're out in the woods, I'm sorry, this music is so bad and so <laughs> distracting and so loud and so unnecessary, and I just hated it. It sounds like these where it's like, this is another plus for closed caption. Even if you're hard of hearing or you need them for real, it's also good for me where I'm like, God, can I just lower that? It's so horrible, but I can still read it and then tell you guys what happened so you don't have to sit through it. So we're at the part of the movie now where we're talking about like what happened to him. Did he take his own life in the woods and we'll never find the body? Or did he like abscond to a new life? And remember that guy, Mike, the reporter, who I hated from the beginning? He's the mm-hmm. anti-Tammy who I love. Yep. The director asks him. Do you think he's alive? I don't know if he's alive or not, but if he is, I hope he calls me because I'd like to meet him in a bar some night. And I'll, I've said this before, I'll buy the beer. Sir... Three people are dead. A woman and two children are dead. And you want to have a fucking beer with this guy? I feel like there's context here that we're just not getting. And it still makes me mad. And I think part of that context is that this is one of those stories that lives on in legend in Arizona, especially in the Scottsdale area where this guy's a local reporter. This is the kind of thing, like Tammy says earlier, it's like one in a million that these sorts of cases catch fire and people care about it year after year. People want to fucking know what happened. So over the years, you guys, since 2001, we learned there's been over 10,000 tips. Um, This documentary goes through a handful of them girl would you indulge me <laughs> oh god where where should we start i mean can we start in guatemala all right so in 2009 a lead came in from guatemala i literally have in all capital letters this is the shit i live for yeah i can tell the story in two sentences right yeah. so these tourists took a photo yeah and then apparently like you know when you're at like a tourist location there are other people going to be in pictures sometimes when you're right. out in public <laughs> and so someone freaked out like oh my god how dare i be in the background of your picture i've killed before i'll kill again so- i know these tourists like call the FBI. It looks similar to him. And we went out and attempted to identify who that individual was. There are times when we are able to find the person people calling on. And other times there's just not enough information. And that's what happened in, in, in Guatemala. So that's kind of still sitting out there. So we're kind of watching that area. But the FBI won't release the photo, so we'll never know how close it looks to Robert or not. Which is so infuriating to me. I googled the living shit out of the internet trying to find this picture. It is nowhere to be seen. If you guys have a link to the Guatemala picture, I want to see it. And then we just got to go to Canada. We just got to get to the Canada example. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So in 2004, a lead comes in from Canada. And the detective that we mentioned earlier, John Kirkham, he really thought that this was Robert Fisher. And I remember when they thought that they had found Fisher in Canada. John Kirkham called me. It was late at night. And he said, Tammy, this is it. We think we got him. Yeah, everybody's on board. Everyone thinks they got him. The cops, the FBI, Cheryl, the sister. Everyone's like, this is, you guys, this is it. You know who inserts himself into the situation? Garbage Wade, the neighbor. How does Wade even know? Like, what are you saying? But Wade is like, you know, look, I uh, happen to live in Seattle. So I thought I'd just drive up and take a gander and see for myself if that's Robert Fisher. I'm like, what is he fucking on display? Like, how is he even going to see him? Well, I'll tell you how. The cops were work with Wade to fake arrest and book Wade into this Canadian jail in a country where Wade is not even a citizen. They book him into this prison and Wade all of a sudden is like undercover. And he's telling us like, yeah, I walked into this room and there was the guy talking to his lawyer. When he looked at me and I heard his voice, I knew it was him and he stopped. He did that little look around the room and he scanned and he came back to me just sort of got this instant look on his face like, 
what the hell are you doing? And I was looking at him going, oh my God. And inside just, that's him. That's my old neighbor. We get 10 minutes of all these people being like, it looked just like him. He had the same scar in his back. He had a missing tooth where Robert would have had a missing tooth. It's all of this shit. And you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then we get the one FBI guy who's like, I mean, there are a lot of different traits. His nose, his facial features are very similar to Robert, but his fingerprints didn't match. So like we learn that the fingerprints don't match, but then like that doesn't stop Wade from being like, no girl, it was definitely him. Wade called his mother and is like, mom, <laughs> I, I saw Bobby again. <laughs> it's cutting back and forth between Wade being like, it was definitely him. And this like detective being like, it wasn't him. And then Wade's like, it is. And the detective's like, no, like the Canadian police know this person. He has a criminal history. It wasn't him. And Wade's like, no, yes, it was. And then it cuts back to the FBI. He's like, this guy's own mother came down and identified him. This is not Robert Fisher. Then and this is the whole part that is like so ridiculous because Wade is like he did his research he was a nurse I think he knew how to get away with changing his fingerprints and suddenly everyone including my best friend Tammy the local reporter is taking this all very seriously can fingerprints be altered sure fingerprints can be altered we've heard of that happening is it easy no but has it happened yeah First of all, you can't just change fingerprints, right? Like everyone just so we're on the same page. You can't do that. But why doesn't Tammy know that? Because Tammy's like, look, that's far-fetched. It's ridiculous. It probably isn't true. But like, yeah, you can totally change your fingerprints. And I'm like, Tammy just pulled the rug out from under me. Because at first <laughs> she was like, girl, please. That's a quite an out there theory to each their own. No, but seriously, you can totally do it. I'm like, Tammy. And then it comes to the FBI guy and he's like, Fingerprints don't lie. I mean, people cannot alter their fingerprints. And if they do try to alter them, there's they leave behind traces and evidence to show that they have altered them. Like, people can try to alter their fingerprints, but you basically have to burn your existing fingerprints off. And, like, that leaves scars and traces. Like, that's not a thing, you guys. Yeah, if you tried to do it, you don't have, like, pristine hands and fingerprints. And then, if they catch you doing it, I looked it up. It's actually, it's, like, illegal to try to do. So, Wade, <laughs> I know you miss your friend, but stop it. Girl, can you tell us how this story ends? Well, since this is basically made for you, there's a psychic. <laughs> Her name is Carrie Schubert, and girl, <laughs> she has a rude awakening I know. coming her way. Listen, I totally believe in psychics. If you're allowed to believe in cadaver dogs, let me have psychics. Look, I read tarot cards. What are you talking about? <laughs> and also tarot and fortune telling are totally different. The point is, we also don't know who this person is. It's just like Carrie Schubert, psychic. Like, can we get a little background on her? Like, why Carrie? <laughs> What's the deal? So Carrie just basically goes on like any actors who are looking for a monologue or soliloquy or whatever, just use this because Carrie goes on and on into the night, as my mom would say. So she's like, the first thing I saw looked like be like a beach community. In my head, I was trying to figure out the geography. I think it's the Bahamas. I didn't know till after that he has a connection to Florida. So I definitely feel it's in that part of the world. Ooh, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a beach community. What is it, the Bahamas? Well, no, he has a connection to Florida. So yeah, it's probably there. And oh she goes on and on, the details. She's like, it's not a heavily tourist area because, you know, he'd be recognized. And it's a two-story residential structure. And She sees the house. He has a wraparound porch. How nice for him. I know. No, she's like, it, it was wood, not stucco. Like, it was painted gray, not blue-gray, you guys, but gray. Like, Carrie's got a lot of details. Right, and then we meet Terry, according to 
Carey, who's in the who's in the kitchen. Then I saw him in a kitchen with a woman who I I don't know if her name is Terry. I heard the name Terry, and her hair is about shoulder length, maybe a little bit longer. It has natural wave, and she's a brunette. She has shoulder length hair with a natural wave. Which here's the only thing I can say is that like imagine Carrie the psychic is right, and you're Terry sitting on your wicker couch in some like shitty town in Florida watching this documentary. You hear the wind chimes in the background. <laughs> And you're looking at like your boyfriend, like Randall or whatever he's changed his name to. And you're just like, oh my God, like she gets the name right. She gets the hair right. She gets the house color right. If you're Terry, you're losing your fucking mind. A hundred percent. Then she's like, actually, uh, hold on. Let's back in November and all through January. He was fighting with these three black guys who were bouncers. And I'm like, Carrie, what are you saying? What are you talking about? Then even she gets it because she's like, all right, hold on. Stick with me with this. It's really about to get crazy. In like 2012. Now, this documentary came out well before 2012. So she's like, I know I'm telling the future, yeah, but it's yeah. kind of what I do. He hooks up with a woman. This is in 2012. I know I'm going out there. She has straight dark hair, black hair, or dark brown hair. It's about this length. And um, he's with her for about two months. And then at the end of next year, I felt he was apprehended. I saw him in a courtroom in December. And then I feel him extradited back to Arizona in January of 2013. By the end of 2012, he's in a courtroom. Bada bing, bada boom. By 2013, he's in prison. And I'm like, Carrie, girl? <laughs> the year is 2020. And none of this came true. Here's my question. Like, I tried to goo Carrie the psychic. Like, what does she have to say for her goddamn self? Or is she credible at all? I know. <laughs> but then speaking of uncredible, we get the, the director himself, Charlie Min. I know. Just telling us his thesis about how he thinks that Robert's alive. <laughs> and he suddenly finds a way to make this triple homicide arson, this horrible story about himself. I know. <laughs> After all the research and the interviews conducted, it's my belief that Robert Fisher is alive for three main reasons. The first one being that he took out $280 from his bank account. The second reason is that he packed his clothes. And the final reason being that inside that car found at the forest, his wife's SUV, it was spotless. I know, and that's how it ends, you guys. Like, it wasn't a great documentary, this one. He ends it with that creepy lullaby music again and the baby cooing <laughs> noises. Like, Charlie, girl, watch one other movie. Watch Long Shot, please. 45 minutes, one and done. Um, you guys, we did it. We did Where's Robert Fisher. I'll tell you the short answer is we just don't goddamn know. Yeah, the woods probably. Who cares? He sucks. I want justice for everybody, you know, but at this point, it's like, this is how bad this documentary was yeah. where I'm like, ugh. Um, you guys, if you want more Jillian and me, listen, I know it's a time in the world where you need to laugh. We need to laugh. We are so happy to be making the Patreon content. At the $5 level, you get like 140 mm -hmm. full bonus episodes to binge right the second. It's our series. Girl, name three of the series. Uh, The Jinx, Making a Murderer, and The Staircase. Ha. Uh, Lacey Peterson, Menendez Murders, and Don't F with Cats. Like, there's so many on there. Clear the storage on your phone. Join us at the $5 level. You're going to have more content than you even know what to do with. Mm -hmm. Um, Girl, what are we doing next? Girl, we are doing Shut Up and Sing next. I'm so excited. <laughs> Me too. You guys, it's the documentary that came out so many years ago about the Dixie Chicks and their undeserved fall from grace during that whole controversial period where they said some stuff. I love the Dixie Chicks so much. I cannot fucking wait to do this documentary. And like they're back. Gaslighter is such an amazing song. And like I, we need the Dixie Chicks now and we love them so much. And we're just like, well, how are we going to make this true crime? And I'm like, well, it's a crime that it happened right. to them at all. 
all this bullshit. And Natalie Maines like fought for Damien in the West Memphis Three. So there it is. It's a connection. Good to go. And it's also a whole thing about the freedom of speech. Yeah. Like there, like there's crimes all over this shit. Plus, we just need something that we're gonna like scream and love and laugh about. So it's gonna be a great episode. I know. I'm gonna have to like make like extra fancy dinners for Super Odd Husband Mike because he's gonna have to deal with a lot of screaming for Shut Up and Sing. This is a very small apartment, so we're going to do our best. I can't wait. Girl, where can they find us? They can find us at truecrimeobsessed.com. That's the site. You got your episodes, the calendar, what we're doing next, merch codes, all that goodness. On Instagram, at truecrimeobsessedpodcast. You are at Patrick Hines underscore on Instagram and at Patrick Hines on Twitter. You're at Jillian with a G on all the things. You guys, we love you. Stay tuned for the trailer for Shut Up and Sing and our, like, I'm sure ridiculous and hilarious outtakes. Oh my God. I mean, this is just <laughs> insane. Outtakes for days. Uh, for days. And look, at a time like this, happy to give them to you. Exactly. All right. We love you, you guys. We Girl, love I you. love you. I love I you. I love seeing your face. I hate that we're 300 miles away, but I'm so happy to see you when we get to do this every week. Look, we found a way to do it. So I'm thrilled that the show is going to continue to go on, truly. All right. I love you so much. I love you guys. And we'll see you soon. Soon. Bye, everybody. All right. Bye. United States and our allies are authorized to use force in ridding Iraq of weapons of mass destruction. Behind the growing build-up to war, there's also a growing anti-war movement. We're ashamed the President of the United States is from Texas. Try not to be judgmental of the president. I'll tell you why. He's got sky-high approval. The war couldn't be going better. The people who got it all started was a right-wing group called the Free Republic. They should send her to Iraq, strap her to a bomb, and just drop her over Baghdad. They're attempting to manipulate the American media, and the American media is falling for it. The Red Cross wouldn't take a million dollars from us. Well, you do know that George W. Bush is the honorary chairman. The radio station set up these garbage cans for people to throw out their CDs. They had the hottest song in the country, and it died. All these radio stations, they won't play them. We call an ass, and they won't. We are a confederation of 270 individual stations. You made a decision from corporate headquarters that was binding on your DJ. Mr. Chairman. And just prior to that, you say that you're an independent radio station. That's a total contradiction. <laughs> Natalie Maines will be shot dead Sunday, July 6th. The Bible Center is working with police to provide extra security surrounding the Dixie Chicks concert. It's easy for people to write ugly things and hateful things, but when somebody hates you so much for what you say that they want to kill you. They shouldn't have their feelings hurt just because some people don't want to buy their records. They shouldn't have their feelings hurt. What a dumb... Let me say something. Please, like my favorite part of every episode. Every every time you turn the FaceTime, it turns for me. Because I'm trying to turn it down so we're not getting a bunch of mic bleed, but what am oh. I, you know. Um, I mean, look, we're doing our goddamn best. I know. <laughs> 
I will say that like Robbia likes us so much. I am like waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm totally waiting for Robbia to text you one day and be like, girl, she was fine until she wasn't. Do you know I think about that only with me all the time where I'm like, Robbia, Robbie is totally over me, right? She's gotta be by this point. TJ says something here too that I'm like, wait, what? He's like, so I went to the Mayo Clinic where he supposedly worked. And I was like, TJ, what do you know, girl? I caught that today in my rewatch. Yeah. I was like, supposedly worked. I, hmm. Can't we just get a timesheet? Like, I'm sure that we could probably dot that I or cross that T pretty easily, TJ. Well, I'm sure it's there. Don't talk to TJ. Talk to this filmmaker. I know. Okay. That's Whoa. on him. Charlie, whatever his name is. Like, and it was this 357 Magnum, which he, quote, carried with him at all times. Yeah. Even in church? Okay. I know. I love that people are quoting you in the Facebook group. I have three friends. That's plenty. I don't need any more. That's from Freaks and Geeks. Sam Weir says that. I already, I don't need any more friends. I have three. How many more friends does a guy need? That's perfect. <laughs> He's just like, yeah, but no, don't you yeah, but me, Wade, enough. <laughs> Wade, we hate you, Wade. Mm -hmm.